baseball fans. It's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. The Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of From the Diamond. As always, I'm Grant McCauley, and after a bit of a break, we finally got ourselves an actual live baseball event. No, it wasn't getting teams back on the field, but the 2020 MLB draft took place this week. So we're going to jump into what exactly the Atlanta Braves did with that as I talk to Eric Cole of Talking Chop. And I'll also be joined by Carlos Colasso of Baseball America, who will give me kind of the 30,000-foot view of what exactly this draft was like, his impressions of it, how he felt like the Braves did, and maybe what the ripple effects will be for this five-round draft that took place this week in Major League Baseball. Before we get into all that, I want to let you know you can subscribe to From the Diamond on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Leave those ratings and reviews. If you like what you hear on the podcast, be sure to tell a friend. And you can also connect on social media. Find the show on Twitter at FromTheDiamond underscore. I am at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. And you can find me on Instagram at Grant McCauley and the show at FromTheDiamond on Instagram as well. As we jump into all our draft coverage, want to let you know over at FromTheDiamond.com, you can find a very comprehensive draft review of the Braves' four picks. You'll find all the draft reactions, the scouting reports, the analysis that you've come to expect. You can read what Braves VP of Scouting Dana Brown had to say about each of the Braves' four picks, as well as hearing from first-round pick Jared Schuster. And I got some insights from a couple of Braves prospect writers that I happen to know pretty well, one of whom you'll hear from on this show, Eric Cole of Talking Chop. Also, David Lee of BravesProspects.com. They were nice enough to share their takeaways, their immediate analysis, if you will, on each of the Braves' four draft picks. So check that out. It's Analyzing the Braves' 2020 Draft Class. You can find it at FromTheDiamond.com. So let's take a deeper dive into what exactly the Braves accomplished with their 2020 draft class. And to help me do that, I want to welcome in Eric Cole to the show. He, of course, from Talking Chop. He is uh, a man who is in charge of a lot of podcasts, it would appear, which I can certainly uh, commiserate with you for that, but also doing some great job covering the Braves farm system. Also, MLB Daily Dish. Your plate is very full, to make a very bad pun there, Eric, but I appreciate you making some time for me today. Hey, man, thanks for having me. I'm always happy to be on the show. All right, well, let's jump into the Braves draft class, which unlike any other draft that we've ever seen, and hopefully it's going to change back to a little bit more expanded format as we move forward into the future. That, of course, another topic for another day. But a five-round draft, the Braves had four total picks to work with, and it was an all-college draft for the Braves. So uh, just quickly, I guess, give me your impressions of the draft class, and then we'll kind of break these guys down pick by pick. Overall, I am... It seems like an okay draft class. It's not something that's like objectively bad, but it's certainly not a lot of upside and there's not a lot of exciting names. And that's a function of a couple things. One is that the Braves were just picking lower in the first round, which makes things complicated, especially when you have a lot of teams ahead of you that have a significantly more bonus pool with you than you. You also have a significantly diminished bonus pool because you lost that second round pick mm-hmm. and you didn't have that get that comp round pick because of even though you lost Josh Donaldson, you signed two guys to qualifying offer, so you end up being down two picks that you would normally would have had. 
combine that with just not having the bonus pool, I think that they were maybe trying to float some guys down to where they were that it just didn't quite make it to them because, again, you know, with playing the money games, you know, you have to kind of hope that between your draft position and a little bit of luck that the guys you want fall to you. That I don't think this is exactly what the Braves would have considered like their like top end. This is the draft we wanted, mm-hmm. but there's also a really a, like it's a class of just there's good players uh, that, that seem like they can contribute to the major leagues pretty quickly. Um, I don't know how much it, it, it helps. There's kind of the stated goal of helping the lower miners kind of get restocked a bit because these seem like guys that are going to be moving relatively quickly. Sure. Yeah. But overall, I mean, like there's a lot of players to like in this draft. I'm just not sure if I'm in love with them, any of them quite yet. Yeah, I would categorize my reaction to it as cautiously optimistic about what they've got. I mean, clearly with a draft, I mean, there's risk. Nobody's a, a slam dunk or very few players are, are really a slam dunk. They're going to have to go out and develop a little bit more. But as you mentioned, they can get to the big leagues quicker because they are college players. And that may be a function of the draft. It may be a function of, as you mentioned, where the draft position was for the Braves, having to wait between their first pick and the well, their first overall pick and then wait for their second overall pick, which didn't come until round three. So a lot of different factors at play. But let's start with their number one overall pick. He was number 25 in the MLB draft. And that, of course, was Jared Schuster, a left-hander out of Wake Forest. I like this pick. I don't know that there wasn't necessarily maybe more exciting, more talented, more toolsy prospects, if you will. But I think that he really seemed to turn a corner with his development. And if this is a guy that has three pitches and already has mastered a changeup, I like that kind of pitching prospect because it seems like we hear it every single year. Well, when this guy learns a changeup, then he'll be able to stick as a starting pitcher. This sounds like a guy where you don't have to put that disclaimer on him. Uh, I agree with that, except the question I have for him is about the breaking ball, oddly enough. The changeup is legitimately excellent, and when you have a 6'3", 2'10", lefty that throws a really like, plus changeup and it has a fastball that's you know added three or four miles an hour to it over the last year, that is something to be excited about. The, the breaking ball just seems to be okay right now. There's a lot, there, but with breaking balls, there's a lot of different grips that you can experiment with. There's a lot of different, you know, between arm slots and you know just some slight changes in how you get your spin and maybe throwing you know a different type of breaking ball that you can find something that works for you. And that that fastball changeup combo is going to do a lot of damage. And it's going to help them a lot against right-handed hitters, which is the biggest deal. Mm-hmm. Because while you know a breaking ball is you know your weapon to kind of make yourself you know really good against same-handed hitters. If you have a good changeup, that that bodes well for you for having some kind of reverse split type things going for you. You know, you, you just have to make sure that what you saw in the Cape Cod League and what you saw early on in 2020, that that stuff was real. Because what we haven't seen from him is a full season of him being a dominant pitcher. Because his first two years of Wake Forest were not particularly good, but he was legitimately amazing at, 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 in the Cape Cod League, which is a wood bat league. And he looked really good to start this year, and all the velo numbers looked good. Can he hold that up as a starter over the course of a full season? We're just not sure. But honestly, if he had held up like that for a full season at Wake Forest, he wouldn't have been available for the Braves at 25. He would have easily been a top 15 pick. So there's yeah. there's definitely some upside with this pick, and I and I like the value. We were kind of thinking that maybe he, considering his lack of track record, that he might be a little bit of an underslot pick. It doesn't sound like that was the case. But considering what where you are at 25 and some of the guys that they were, I think they were angling for, Bryce Jarvis being one of them, mm-hmm. uh, a couple of other the prep, uh, prep guys they might have been willing to spend a little bit of money for. They got picked right before the Braves right. picked. 
it's kind of hard to go wrong with this guy. Yeah, a couple of good points you made there. Number one, if you continue in the 2020 season and it's not cut short by the pandemic, which of course had everybody off the field, so you only got to see a, a very small sample size of this guy. If he continued on and pitched like this all year, you're right. He may not have been available at number 25 overall anyway. And then the flip side of that coin in terms of what else was going on around the 25th pick was – you're right. There's other teams are making selections, so other guys are coming off the board as well. But I think that the Braves were able to stay pretty true, I'm sure, to who they were targeting and looking for. And, you know, you got to be able to pivot pretty quickly if somebody's going to come off the board. That's just the nature of the beast with this draft. But I do think there's a lot to like about this pick in terms of his projectability. And again, you don't have to start this guy out in the Gulf Coast League and work him all the way up and grow him and groom him the way that the Braves had to do with a lot of the younger pitchers that they had, the high school arms, even though some of them, in the case of, say, a Mike Soroka or a Colby Allard, were kind of fast-tracked through the system. This will be an interesting look to see these college arms coming in, which seems to have been a bit of a trend the last couple of years after so many high school players. So as far as college guys go, the Braves got three pitchers. They also got one position player. He was their second overall pick. Had to wait quite a while into, what, the 90s to make another pick. It was Jesse Franklin, center fielder out of Michigan, Eric, what was your read on this pick? Do you like going with a position player here? And uh, what do you see as a long-term, I guess, projection and viability of Jesse Franklin, a center fielder who seems to have some power and the ability to run him down as well? Jared Schuster was the best player that the Braves drafted in this draft, but Jesse Franklin might be our favorite prospect that they drafted in the in the draft. He was a, a kind of a greater than the sum of his parts type guy. Mm-hmm. He's an above average hitter. He has above average power. He runs pretty well. Maybe not. Maybe he again. He's not a burner. He's not a guy that's going to be hitting 500 foot home runs, uh, and he's not going to be necessarily challenging for batting titles. But he does a lot of things well and it all plays up for him because he has this kind of you know puts a ton of work in loves baseball has really good instincts in the field uh there are folks who think he can stick in center field but he's also the kind of guy that if he had to move to a corner spot which would probably be left field because i'm not sure if he has the arm for right he's a guy that you know he's not going to embarrass you because at the plate he he's a legitimately a very good player uh side note uh, our own brad Rowland at talking chop is an avid michigan fan uh-huh. and this guy getting drafted out of the university of michigan was a, a big deal so if for no other reason for brad that having a, a wolverine in the in the pipeline is definitely going to be a good thing but more importantly we really do think this guy can hit and you know when you get that sort of guy who can maybe contribute pretty quickly to an outfield spot and you get him in the third round of this particular draft, which was really weird. It's kind of hard to go wrong there. Yeah, I think so. And the Braves, one of the functions of what they had going on was not having their second round pick because of the signing of Will Smith. So the Braves lost that pick and clearly that's going to affect the pool money that they had, but coming back in the third round and getting a guy that has some legitimate tools. I mean, you can see why the Braves like this guy, because I think from a offensive perspective, you know, talking with Dana Brown a little bit about it, you know, he's going to come into more power than he's even shown in Michigan is what the Braves believe. So if he does move to a corner, which Dana did say would be left field, that's okay too. But obviously for his overall value and, and overall profile, they'd love it if he could stick in center field and they feel like he's above average there. So a well-rounded player. And I think you hit the nail on the head with kind of the sum of his parts uh, being a, a little bit more of how you would look at him than say, you know, having one, or two tools that are particularly head and shoulders above the rest. A well-rounded player, some college World Series experience, uh, improved his on-base skills a little bit. Even though the average dropped uh, last season, he was able to improve the on-base skills and draw some more walks. I think that's kind of important as young hitters grow, that that part of their game isn't lagging behind and everything is not predicated on, okay, well, this guy's got to hit his way on base or he ain't getting on base at all. 
that's pretty much how we feel about it. And, you know, again, having those kinds of players in your system, they're just good baseball players, and they seem like the, the, all their stuff sort of plays up at the plate. That definitely is, is kind of a guy that you want to want and see maybe he can kind of come and get some actually actually more out of maybe one specific tool once you have him in your system because if that happens, you've got yourself a ball player. Yeah, and kind of a bummer for him as well. Not only was his season going to be cut short because of COVID-19, but he also broke his collarbone in a skiing trip in January, so he didn't get to get even the smallest number of at-bats, that small sample size. So it had been a while since he'd been on a baseball field, but the Braves had scouted him. They had seen him last summer as well in the Cape Cod League, and I think they like this one, and this is the only position player that they drafted of course, they can sign a number of undrafted players if they want to do that, but this was a pitching-heavy draft, once again, for the Braves, which I don't think shocks anybody out there. Fourth round, though, Eric, I know you've discussed this on Twitter and, of course, the write-up as well over at FromTheDiamond.com. Eric was nice enough to join me and provide some of his insight on each one of these picks. Spencer Strider, not really a name that people were expecting, not listed among the top draft prospects available, but uh, considering the pedigree prior to having Tommy John surgery, I think the Braves might have gotten themselves a very intriguing name who's got some very intriguing stuff as well, even if he doesn't end up being a starting pitcher long-term. What do you make of the Spencer Strider pick, the Braves' fourth-rounder out of Clemson? I understand the necessity to make the pick, um, considering what happened with their next pick. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can get into that a little bit. Uh, it was pretty clear once his name was announced that this was an underslot signing. Right. Because Spencer Strider, it was very likely that he wasn't going to be drafted at all. I, I feel I feel fairly confident in saying that. Not not completely, because again, with the level of information that we had in this draft, it's worth mentioning that what the industry at large thought about prospects and what the specifically the organizations thought about these prospects did not match up as well as it normally does for sure uh, over the course of this five round draft. And I think that's just a function of what Braves, what teams were looking for out of these drafts. You know, there's, it was definitely very college heavy in the, in these five rounds. There were some prep guys, but not as many as there normally are. And it's, it was a very, just a different feel. Uh, But when you have a guy who probably isn't going to stick as a starter, who has already had Tommy John surgery and, you know, kind of has, you know, Look, the fastball sits in the mid-90s. You like the slider coming out of him. It's a live arm, but we just haven't seen him be able to, like, stay healthy and really see what he's going to be at, where he's going to be. He's not the guy that you would normally pick in this structure of a fifth round, five-round draft unless you're trying to save some money. And it's sounded like, you know, it sounds like from, you know, rep- you know reports from, you know, Braves officials and just kind of around the league is that the Braves knew had – had their fifth round pick in Bryce Elder kind of he they were targeting this guy. It was going to take a little bit more money to sign him, so they sign a guy that you know maybe it's just like a, this is a little bit of a reach of a scouting department that feels like this is a guy with upside that they can mm-hmm. also get at a discount. And once you do that, and then you move on and you get you get Bryce Elder in the fifth, it kind of works out overall in the end. Yeah, and while his career at Clemson obviously had to take a bit of a detour because of Tommy John surgery, this was a pretty highly touted player coming out of high school, a fourth best prospect in Tennessee as far as preps are concerned by Baseball America. So he had a little bit of cachet there. He'd been drafted by the Indians in the 35th round as well back in 2017. Of course, he was born in Ohio, even though he grew up in Tennessee. Indians fan, that had to be a bit of a thrill for him. But either way, I think the question that the Braves or any club that would be interested in him wanted to see was when he came back from Tommy John surgery, was his stuff going to be back at the pre-surgery levels? And Dana Brown indicated that it certainly was. They got him up to 96-97. As you mentioned, he's got a pretty good breaking ball. Not the complete, you know, well-rounded pitching prospect. I think that perhaps Schuster is or maybe even Elder, who we'll talk about in a moment, but an interesting arm. And I've always looked at drafts, and this five-round one is kind of an anomaly, but 
you're looking to draft guys that can make it to the major leagues and contribute in some way, shape, or form. Clearly, you want to use your higher picks on the best talent that you can get and hopefully impact players. But even so, if you can draft and develop these guys, get them to the major leagues, and this guy's a viable reliever for you for a number of seasons, that's still a win in a lot of ways, even if it's not the sexiest pick or the sexiest scenario to be sitting around talking about when you start thinking about the excitement of hopefully drafting future stars when you look at an MLB draft or really any sport. Absolutely, and it does fit kind of what the Braves have been trying to do too. I mean, they they last year was a pretty heavy, pretty heavy college class. They were trying to get a variety of guys, and they picked the reliever pretty early in that draft too. They they drafted Casey Kalick, who was probably one of the better relief prospects in that entire draft. And they they didn't wait until day three to pick him up and just you know see if he can start and then just eventually transition him to a reliever. They drafted him to be a reliever, and you know again this is just kind of the the team going, hey, we want to have some relief arms that we think we can get we can get at a much more discounted rate than you would be in free agency or in a trade and have these guys in the system that when we need some relief arms, we can call upon them. Yeah, they definitely have to be able to do that as you develop uh, what will be a well-rounded system. And as we look at the, you know, rounding out this draft class and we get to that final pick for the Braves, only their fourth pick in a five-round draft because, again, they were working without a second-round pick, we started to see some of the strategy component that may have been in play or was in play when they took Spencer Strider with their fourth-round selection, and that was using some of the available funds to perhaps be able to pay a little bit more for a talent like Bryce Elder, who, again, in talking to Dana Brown after this pick was made, Elder was seriously considering, you know, with an extra year of eligibility granted to him by the NCAA, going back and pitching for Texas again. So whatever club was going to draft him was going to have to be pretty sure they had the necessary funds to sign him and was comfortable doing so. And it sounds like for the Braves, they're able to check both of those boxes and got a very nice starting pitching prospect to round out their draft class. Uh, How did you size up the elder pick and uh, the talents that he brings to the Braves organization uh, when he's able to get signed? We do like Elder. Uh, this isn't a particularly high ceiling pitching prospect, but this is a guy that knows how to pitch and, and, and knows what to do with the offerings that he does have. And again, once you make the pick, the Spencer Strider pick, it's pretty clear that the Braves and, the, and Elder have a number in mind that mm-hmm. they've agreed upon. And if they have if they have that amount of money, then he would then he would sign. In this particular structure of a draft, I think it would be very likely that if Elder were not to sign that the Braves would just never do business with that agent ever again. Uh, so I think that it's, it's incredibly likely that he signs. Yeah, there's weird things that can happen with physicals, sure, but yeah. n- there's nothing that's a red flag on you know Elder's record. Uh, it's look, the fastball's a low low 90 sinker, uh, gets a bunch of ground balls. The slider is very is legitimately very good. Uh, and that's kind of his swing and miss pitch. And he does have a changeup, but when you don't really have the velocity in your fastball, maybe it doesn't play up quite as much. Maybe they can find they can get another tick out of that fastball, mm-hmm. but the guy just knows how to sequence pitches and he knows how to throw a lot of strikes. And when you're the ace, when you're like the Friday night starter, the ace of a, the University of Texas baseball squad, that's a guy that knows how to pitch. And his, and Texas's coach said that's one of the best pitchers he's ever coached. Yeah, and that's and, and that's not small praise coming from that program. So you know, it's a weird situation this year where because of the extra years of eligibility that have been kind of granted given the situation and or at least are expected that college players had a little bit more leverage than normally would in drafts. So kind of which guys you could pick and which guys would like threaten to just go back to school. Yeah. Uh, we saw that with Cole Wilcox, for example, he's a guy that he was a draft eligible sophomore and he was a guy that, you know, was just going to go back to school if he didn't get the first round money he wanted. Uh, that's a little bit of a different situation, but I think we saw that a lot this year where there's some college guys that maybe, had the ability to go back to school if they want to, and they either got picked a little higher than they normally would, 
or that they just will end up going back to school and then they're going to try again next year when the round when there's more bonus pools to go around and then maybe have a chance to stock build their stock a bit. Yeah, and it's we knew this was going to be a different year in terms of spending, in terms of strategy, yep. in terms of you know where some of these guys were going to fall, uh, where some of these guys might be a reach, and where some guys might just slide. Because once I think that that door was open to be able to get the eligibility back to go back to college, you could weigh your options completely differently as a what was a junior pitcher in this past season that was cut short. But kind of getting back to Elder and what he does on the field, you mentioned the sinker-slider combo. That got high marks from the Braves, uh, something they certainly liked. And just kind of you know doing the simple math, I mean, this was a guy that rated 83rd on Baseball America's top 500 draft prospects. He went at pick number 156. So that in and of itself would tell you that the Braves felt like they got a good value at the spot in the draft where they were. And Dana Brown added that not having that second-round pick, they had Elder kind of – you know, sitting right there with Franklin in terms of where they were going to go with their second overall pick. And they ended up being able to get both guys. So even though they lost that draft pick and, of course, some of the other compensation picks that came and went from the Braves based on the offseason signings that they did, not bad to get another talent like this to round out your class and a guy that maybe you would have drafted a little bit higher under different circumstances in a different season. Yeah, if you think about it as instead of the Braves getting a first, a third, a fourth, and a fifth round pick, and the Braves instead with a first, then two third round picks, and then you had to go under slot in the fifth round. Mm-hmm. If you just change the order of some of these players picked, you understand it. And again, given the situation the Braves were in, you know, I think there were a few teams that were messed up quite as badly with the draft going to five rounds than the Braves. Uh, the Astros being probably the worst, yeah. but that's you know, because because of all the penalties that were imposed upon them, but. This one particularly stings for the Braves because, you know, in a year where you'd only give up, you give up a comp round pick and you give up a second round pick, you'd still be able to do the normal things you normally uh, you would normally be able to do on day two. And plus in day three, you can kind of, you know, go after a lot of those like high school yeah. lottery ticket types that the Braves are really good about being able to like get find real value in. They just couldn't do that this year. And it was a real shame. I'm interested to see what they do with undrafted free agents. There's a limit to what they can do because, again, they can only pay these guys $20,000. But I think that they're going to be able to still line up some talent and maybe fill out those lower minors rosters a little bit. Yeah, I'd agree with that as well. And, and talking with Dana Brown after they finished the draft off in day two, I mean, he lamented the fact that they didn't have a chance to have rounds six through ten where they could have targeted some of those high school guys and uh, been able to do more in that regard. Unfortunately, it just wasn't in the cards this year because of the format of the draft. But he said they're going to go out and be aggressive, and they've targeted a list of, what, about 30 players or so that they're going to you know, look to do what they can. I think that you spoke to what kind of players we might be looking at as well with, you know, guys that are collegiate and have a decision to make and uh, may decide that they want to go ahead and start their career. But in terms of the high school thing and even some of those players that maybe you you take a reach on because of how much a scout believes in them, this format kind of robbed the draft of uh, some of the nuances that make the draft so much fun to follow each and every year. Absolutely. And again, it just kind of stinks that these financial considerations, uh, and if I'm just being perfectly honest, the amount of money that you're saving from this mm-hmm. eliminating kind of the back half of the draft, I feel like that's the best value that you're going to get as an organization in Absolutely. terms of adding talent to your system. And I, I just don't agree with that decision. I understand that we live in some pretty bizarre times yeah. uh, in terms of, and, you know, cuts are what they want, they want to be made. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it's, this isn't about 2020. It's about what your organ, where your organization is going to be in 2021. And now we're it puts us in, 
puts the entire league in a weird position where all of a sudden a lot of gains are going to be made in free agency and it puts a lot of pressure on that 2021 draft. It can mess things up for a long time given the decision they made to have this draft format, but there's nothing we can really do about it now. Uh, and what we can do now is just kind of see how this unfolds with undrafted free agents and kind of seeing what this draft class in 2021 looks like because I have a suspicion that a lot of these high school guys that we thought would have normally been drafted are heading straight for junior colleges uh-huh. and they're going to be in that draft. Well, I'm glad you covered that. That was kind of the last thing I was going to say is the circumstances around this draft going to have some ripple effects and of course uh, we'll have it in context in a few years as to exactly what teams accomplished and uh, maybe what exactly effects this had on uh, how we view the draft going forward and any changes that might be made because as you mentioned we are living in some uh, uncertain and uh, unprecedented times if you will in the world of baseball of course with everything that's going on trying to get the game back on the field collective bargaining agreement all of the other things and some of the acrimony and the slings and arrows that are going back and forth I don't know about you, but Eric, I'm looking forward to having baseball players back out on Major League Fields playing Major League Baseball again sooner than later so that I can feel maybe a little bit more normal about where our baseball life is and where it's headed. I couldn't agree more. Hopefully these two sides can figure things out or at the very least, you know, just go ahead and just make a decision and get the ball rolling uh, and we can figure out the kind of the logistics of the as we go and, you know, do so in a safe way, but also kind of get back to kind of enjoying the pastime that we love so much. Yeah, for sure. Before we get out of here, uh, let me allow you to go ahead and plug everything that's going on at, at Talking Chop with the uh, great writers that you guys have uh, under that umbrella doing great work on this draft. Also, the podcast and other good things you guys have going on. I appreciate it. Uh, you can always follow us on First at TalkingChop.com, there's a ton of draft resources on there, write-ups on each one of these picks. We're going to be kind of doing some more in-depth looks as to kind of what the draft class is going to look like as a whole and how we feel about it as well. Uh, there's draft tracker information. There's a bunch of preview content on there as well if you wanted to kind of get a look as to what we thought going into the draft. Uh, if you are on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your preferred podcast provider, uh, make sure you look at the Talking Chop podcast stream because there's two different podcasts on there one is the talking chop podcast which is just kind of our flagship one you'll hear my voice on there every once in a while uh talking about the minor leagues or just what's going on around the league and there's also the road to atlanta podcast which is going to have more of a minor league draft focused type stuff that's myself along with matt powers garrett spain garavi deck we're all kind of on there that we talk a lot about what's going on in the system uh, i have one of the best minor league staffs in the you know that you'll find anywhere on the internet and these Absolutely. guys really put forth a lot of work into getting the, getting ready for this draft and covering it and so i really want to make sure people take a look at their work well always a, a thrill to talk about the braves minor league system with guys that are so focused and uh, do such a great job of covering it so thanks for making some time for me as always give those guys my best and I look forward to doing this again very soon not a problem man thanks for having me thanks again to eric cole make sure you're following his work on twitter at leprechaun is where you can find him So we just covered our bases on the draft from the Braves' perspective. Now let's do so from the overall Major League Baseball perspective. My guest at this time writes for Baseball America. You might have caught him on MLB Network as part of their ongoing draft coverage. He is Carlos Colazzo. Make sure you're following his work on Twitter at Carlos A. Colazzo and, of course, at Baseball America. Carlos, it's been a little while since we've had a chance to chat, but I know the draft has been on our mind and especially on your mind over there at Baseball America. Thanks for making some time and... Uh, let me just go ahead and get your impressions of maybe the most obvious question is, how did you feel about this five-round draft and the way it played out? It was certainly unprecedented, if nothing else. Yeah, it definitely was. I think in terms of our mock drafts and kind of just how we saw the top of the board going off, it got a little bit wacky, uh, but nothing too crazy. I mean, we had heard the Orioles were thinking about some underslot deals. They took Heston Kerstad at number two, mm-hmm. which... I think it's maybe a little bit of a reach there, but uh, the assumption is they're going to save some money and put it towards the back of their class. After that, though, I think 
uh, teams pretty much course corrected and all the names that we expected to go in the first and in the supplemental first round, all of those names made sense. Um, I think there were two guys who were outside of our top 50 that went within the first round and the supplemental first round. So pretty chalky, actually, which was nice to see. But yeah, it was very college heavy at the top. The high school guys kind of took over at the end of the first round. So in terms of percentages, it was uh, pretty pretty close to what we've seen in recent years in the first round, at least. I think I'm curious to see if the college percentages are are a little bit higher throughout the just overall in the top five rounds. But no, it was a fun draft. And I think some teams uh, did a really good job getting a lot of talent. And obviously, we'll have to wait a couple of years to see who really is the winners and the losers here. But uh, it's just nice to see it actually happen after, you know, a whole year of work. Yeah, no doubt about it. I know you guys put a ton of work into the draft covers that you do over at Baseball America. And as I've heard from anybody in and around that's worked in a draft or covering a draft, it's the preparation for the next year starts immediately after the draft mm-hmm. that you've just completed. So I'm sure you're going to be getting back to work before too long. And you touched on a lot of stuff there as, as we got going. But let me ask in, in terms of uh, surprises and strategic selections and that kind of thing. You did feel like the first round and even that supplemental round pretty much called the names that you guys were expecting, even if the order might have been just a little bit different. Yeah, I think so. There really was not a single player that was taken in that range. I was like, oh, that's surprise. Actually, I will backtrack. I think the Red Sox probably had the surprise of right. day one. Nick York, uh, the second baseman from Western, uh, the Western part of the country, that was definitely a reach, an aggressive one, but I don't think it's a crazy pick. There was a lot of uh, assumption right away that it was the Red Sox punting or something. Yeah, I think that's kind of ridiculous. Um, I mean, the first line of our scouting report for Nick York is that some evaluators believe he is the best pure hitter on the West Coast among high schoolers. So that means there are people who believe he's a better hitter than Pete Kerr Armstrong and Tyler Soderstrom, some of the preps that we saw go in the first round before and after him. Um, so while it might not be the consensus opinion that he's a first-round talent, uh, the Red Sox didn't have a second-round pick. If they really liked him and they were one of those teams that really bought into that bad at that kind of a level, uh, you maybe don't want to risk him not getting to you in the third round. Uh, so I think that pick, uh, it, it's interesting this year because he's a guy who, if he had a few more months to actually play, Maybe he plays himself up the board, right. and, and it's not too crazy. I think the Indians took a guy in Carson Tucker who, if the draft was in February, Carson Tucker's name would have looked pretty crazy here. But he got a chance to play in Arizona, uh, and he was stronger, and he was faster, and he really impressed, so he moved up board. So I think for a Northern California guy who didn't get as much time, maybe you didn't see that development, at least with uh, maybe the public-facing draft rankings and the consensus boards, but... That's definitely the the biggest surprise of the first day, but I, I applaud the Red Sox for taking their guy and getting aggressive despite bucking the the consensus, I would say. Yeah, and let me ask you this, just because I know you work so – the draft is an integral part of what you're doing. It is your focus, but in talking to teams, particularly with the Braves, of course, who I've been around for a number of years, it's that a lot of the public consensus is built off of – you know, the folks in the services and the, the uh, periodicals, magazines, blogs, whatever you want to call it, that really focus on prospects and start building these rankings and the top 500 list. I know that and it's something that I think a lot of people put a lot of weight into. But each of these clubs, mm-hmm. for better or for worse, they're making their own consensus list. So these things can look mm-hmm. wildly different and can depend on a number of different both tangible 
and intangible aspects about these mm-hmm. players that they've been following for a while that have led them to select a guy that may seem, quote-unquote, off the board or a reach when mm-hmm. the truth is for that team and for that particular player, it might be the best possible match out there. And as, as you mentioned when we opened up as well, it's going to take a few years before we can really judge a yeah. draft class. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I think that that's spot on. I mean, our goal is to try and get the best list we can based on the industry consensus. We talk with mm-hmm. scouts to make this list, so their feedback goes into it. But exactly like you said, I mean, the difference in opinion from one team to another team can be very, very strong. Uh, lists can diverge very quickly. I mean, outside of the top 10, 20 picks and players, I think boards could look vastly different. I think people would be surprised if they could actually put their hands on each team's pref list, how quickly it diverges. So that definitely is true. I mean, teams have different philosophies, scouts see different things, and and player development folks like different uh, kinds of profiles coming into the system. So I think that's part of the uh, the intrigue about the draft is we can think one thing and a team might surprise us and maybe uh, that player turns out to be a really good pick. Maybe it doesn't, but um, everyone's kind of coming to, to their own conclusions based on a lot of the same stuff. So it makes it fun. It makes it exciting. And obviously, can't wait to see all these players go out and pro ball at some point and, and play. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I guess a lot of the guesswork that had to go into this year's draft was unlike any that we'd seen because of the COVID-19 pandemic shutting down, you know, teams getting the opportunity to see these players basically all the way up until they make these draft selections. So it seems like a lot of clubs and from talking with Dana Brown of the Braves the last couple of days, they kind of had to go off of what they had scouted, you know, maybe even dating back to last summer. How much of a factor do you think that was at play for all of these teams as they tried to make the best decisions they could, but not getting a chance to maybe get that one more look or send that one more guy out there to evaluate those talents? Yeah, I think it's definitely a big factor. I mean, you have to rely on all the information that you've built up over the last few years, and that's why these scouts doing their homework uh, for players as underclassmen or when they're kind of coming up through high school in the summer showcase circuit, in the summer leagues for college ball. All that stuff is so vital, uh, as, as we found out this year. I think I'll be interested to see the teams that were more model-heavy, how their models were affected without the data this year, how they fare versus some of the teams who maybe rely on a more traditional approach that factors in their their scouting reports and tools grades a little bit more. Um, I think there were a few picks this year that were – that looked like model or performance-driven picks. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that was to save money for for some of the guys they took up higher. Now the White Sox had a pretty aggressive strategy with their first two picks. Um, but yeah, I, I do think it's 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 the most unique draft we've ever seen. Um, and I would I would just love to kind of be inside the rooms and know exactly how they're weighting all this stuff because I think it's fascinating and I think teams can come to different conclusions about what they're going to weight, how much of this small sample in this spring are they taking into consideration. I mean, a guy like Bryce Jarvis, Mm -hmm. he had four weeks to pitch this spring and he goes top 20. If you ask where he was going to go before the season started, he might've not been a a first or even a second round kind of guy. That's, that's the improvement that he showed in just four weeks. So things can change pretty rapidly in the draft scene. Um, And if we had another three or four, months to watch these guys we might be looking at an entirely different first round yeah i 100 percent agree with that and it is interesting to see what teams you know what they put their weight into as you mentioned you know every club's going to have certain models that you know are going to their picks are going to be predicated on the research that they've done and the projectability or the projections that they have for a given player mm-hmm. so that guesswork can change over time and clearly small sample sizes from the spring this year 
um, can either weigh really big with the club or perhaps maybe they don't really change it all that much and uh, you're just going off of the body of work, so to speak, because as you mentioned and as we've talked about, you know, the preparation for the next draft has started uh, well into last year, pretty much right after the last one uh, took place. So mm-hmm. the 2020 draft was shaped over a long period of time, but losing the season this year, I think, was a bit of a challenge for all of us to kind of readjust and recalibrate as to exactly you know, what to expect in this draft. But I think going into it, a lot of folks were expecting, and as we saw, Detroit used the number one overall pick on Spencer Torkelson, a first baseman, who was announced as a third baseman, though, by the Tigers. Carlos, how do you think he'll fare at the hot corner if, in fact, that's to be the place that Detroit tries him out at first? Yeah, that was interesting. Um, We've obviously never watched Spencer Torkelson play third base. That Arizona State infield Mm -hmm. is really impressive. They have two shortstops on the left side of the infield. They've got a really good second baseman that we're going to be hearing a lot more about next year. Um, So, you know, I don't think it hurts anything. Um, I think he's athletic enough to maybe have a chance, but at the end of the day, I think he's probably still a first baseman, uh, and I think his bat's good enough to to where you don't need to really mess around with it too much. If he shows some kind of natural ability there, then, I mean, I think that's a huge win. His bat's going to obviously profile better at third base mm-hmm. if he can actually stick there, but uh, I, I still see him kind of moving back towards first. But again... Applaud the Tigers for being creative there, and and let's see if they actually give him a, a significant amount of time at third base, or they just get too excited about his bat and put him at first and let him move through the system quickly. Yeah, and it's interesting just looking at the Tigers' recent history with good hitting first baseman and moving them over to third and then moving them back to first ultimately, and a guy like Miguel Cabrera, who of course had played third base before, and Spencer mm-hmm. Torkelson hasn't quite put together the resume that Cabrera did, but that was a surprising move at the time you know, to put him back over there, considering the size he had put on over the time uh, between the last time he played third base and putting him back a few years ago, I thought he did okay over there. And and I think that one of the things about Spencer Torkelson, and I, this is certainly not a reach, is he's such a special hitter that they're going to find a place for him one way or another, and he's going to impact the game with what he does offensively. And I think in some ways, as long as he's able to just make the plays, so to speak, over at third base, that could be a win. And as you mentioned, it could up the value a little bit of Torkelson. Worst case scenario, he moves back where he was comfortable to begin with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, the value of versatility in today's game is is incredibly high. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think it just depends on kind of the, the team fit. What are the other pieces in your infield that you have to work with? I think when Miguel Cabrera was moved over to third, it made a lot of sense for their team just because of the two corner infielders they had at the time. Maybe it's not ideal defensively, but if you yeah. think you're getting enough value offensively to make up for the limitations at third base, then sure, it makes all the sense in the world. Scoring runs is is just as important as preventing them. So, yeah, I'll, I'll be curious to see how that plays out. If, if it only amounts to him being able to play third base in a pinch, uh, if there's an injury situation or a player goes down or they just need him to play third base for a couple of days, it might be worth it. Um, maybe it's just to kind of increase that versatility and, and get him more well-rounded as a defender. But he is athletic. He does have good arm strength. He does have good hands at first base, so there's no reason tools-wise why he couldn't do it, I would say. Yeah, that seems to be what the Tigers are banking on, is that he just has the ability to make that move over there. And, you know, not long ago, the Braves were bringing back Freddie Freeman, and he volunteered to play third base and did, I would say, okay at it. So it's maybe a strange move when you when you look at it, but when you start to peel back the layers of the why and the versatility, as you mentioned, might be a, a good move and at least worth exploring for the Tigers, if nothing else. 
Uh, Carlos, you talked a little bit about players kind of jumping around in, in the draft order. Were there some players that slid down the board more so than you'd anticipated as the draft went on, maybe even into day two? And what teams do you think might have perhaps gotten themselves a great value as the draft went on as a result of that? Yeah, for sure. I'll talk about two guys on the first day really quick. Uh, I think the best pick of the entire draft is the Blue Jays at number five, getting Austin Martin there. Mm -hmm. I was shocked when the Orioles didn't take him, that he didn't go off the board in the next pick. And then the Royals were sitting there at four, picking between Asa Lacey, our top pitcher on the board, and Austin Martin, uh, the top available hitter, the numbers two and three players in our class. Um, the Royals opted for the arm. It seems like they really, really are excited about adding arms to their system. But yeah. I think that's just a tremendous win for the Blue Jays. I mean, Austin Martin was a viable 1-1 candidate in my mind. Personally, I like his profile and his pure hitting ability enough that I would have taken him with the first pick in the draft. I know Spencer Torkelson has really impressive power, uh, and we had him on our board based on the industry as the number one player. But Austin Martin, I think, is just a very, very special hitter i think he's got a chance to be a great defender at a premium position he's a great runner on the bases he just does so many things well and i just love the bat so much that at five getting this guy i think that's a huge steal uh another pick that i was excited about the padres took a guy cole wilcox out of georgia we expected that he was going to be a first round talent he started sliding uh and and it could have been due to signability concerns Mm -hmm. apparently has a high price tag Uh, But the Padres got him at pick number 80 in the third round after taking some really impressive upside high school players. So they're able to sign him, which we always assume that if a team is drafting a guy in the top 10 rounds normally, but the top five rounds in in this case, that they're going to be able to sign them because it's just too risky to not not have that agreed to and, and get that done. But Wilcox is exceptional value at 80. I mean, he's a guy who can get his fastball up into the upper 90s to 100. He's got a really impressive slider as well. He had taken steps forward in his control this spring uh, to give him more of a chance to start at the next level. Uh, The Padres just keep reloading, man. Their system is already really good. They added a lot of talent this year. And I just love how how aggressive they are. They target upside, and they they don't care if it's a risky player. They, They feel good about their ability to develop talent and it's always fun to see the classes they put together i think that's a great point too because when clubs are confident about what they'll be able to do with those talents and developing those and turning those guys into at least you know quality major leaguers not everybody's going to be a superstar but if you're able to you know keep producing talent that ends up on your 25-man roster and sticks around for a while that is the true value of the full draft class and it's easy to get excited about the number one overall pick and judging everything you've done in the draft class by who you took first but there's a lot of value to be had, and even in this five-round draft, we saw, I think, some changes in the way that teams were uh, able to evaluate their talent and also able to target and maybe grab some talent outside of the first round that it definitely, to your point, was first-round quality. Let me ask you real quick, what did you make of the Braves class, four collegiate players, three of those pitchers? A lot different, Carlos, than those years we saw them stockpiling high school arms not long ago. Yeah, definitely. There were some rumors that the Braves were going to target high school players maybe with their later picks that obviously didn't come to pass. They went mm-hmm. full college. I think they might have got their pockets picked on a couple high school players they liked. I heard they liked Nick Bitsko and he got taken right in front of them. So I'm yeah. interested if, if they would have taken him if he fell there. So again, you can't always look at their class and say this is what they were trying to do because right. it's just how kind of how the board falls to them. Uh, but Jared Schuster, uh, their top guy, I think he's a a perfectly solid first round kind of pick. He's a guy who improved significantly over the past year. He increased his uh, strike throwing ability, increased his fastball velocity, 
gets up to 96, 97 from the left side. He's got a plus changeup. He's got a slider that could be an above average pitch as well. So you look at a left-handed pitcher with good track record in college, uh, three above average pitches and a fastball with that velocity from the left side. Uh, and that's a pretty good combination. Uh, I don't know if he has the, the biggest upside compared to a lot of the guys that were taken around him or maybe a little bit in front of him, but the Braves have done an excellent job developing arms. And I think there's a lot to work with here. Um, two of the other guys we had in the, the BA 500 and, and Jesse Franklin and Bryce Elder. I think Bryce Elder is a pretty good value in the fifth round. Um, and maybe that's part of the Spencer Strider pick in the right. fourth. We weren't as high on Spencer Strider. Uh, but he has shown good stuff before, and coming out of high school, he was a very highly regarded um, player. He's got a fastball that can get into the mid-90s. Uh, he's dealt with some injuries, had Tommy John surgery, and again, that's a guy who the Braves have not shot away from Tommy John guys before, um, at least historically in the past. So they could they could figure out how to get him back to the player that he was in the past, and it wouldn't surprise me. Let me close out with this and just kind of ask you, as we talked about surprises and different strategies of play in the draft, but how much do you think teams may have changed how they targeted players with the amount of limited picks and the fact that now going forward, if they want to sign an undrafted player, the most they can spend on these guys is $20,000. How do you think that's going to affect what we see from these non-drafted classes that these uh, teams are going to go out and sign to round out what would have been, I guess, a normal draft under regular round conditions? Yeah, I'm very excited to see how this plays out and how many how many players each team signs. I think it could I think it could vary quite a bit actually. I mean, there are some teams who have done a few things with their minor league players in terms of salary that I don't know why anyone would choose to sign with them. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, players have never been able to pick who they're going to start their pro career with. So I think it gives them a lot of flexibility. Although obviously the money being capped is a limiting factor. So. It's putting teams in a new position. They're having to behave more like college recruiting coordinators more than scouting departments. So we'll, we'll see kind of how flexible they're able to get. Um, and I think the minor league contraction here is definitely a factor because if, if we weren't expecting teams uh, to be going away and, and dealing with a smaller minor league environment, I think you could see a ton of teams just go crazy here and sign, I mean, 20, 30 players. That wouldn't be surprising at all. This year, I would imagine it would be surprising to see that many just because of some of the limitations with the roster availability. But I think there are going to be some good juniors who probably take that deal. There are probably going to be a lot of seniors as well as we typically would see in this price range, but we've never seen it before. So I don't really know what to expect. I'm, on, I'm just kind of ready to see what happens. Well, it's going to be pretty fascinating. And I believe that'll get cranked up over the weekend as teams will be able to start signing those undrafted guys. But an interesting draft, an unprecedented draft, and I guess next year's will be a little bit different, but hopefully we get back to a, a lengthier format. I think that plays out better overall for baseball. But mm -hmm. uh, speaking of playing out well, great job on uh, MLB Network and their part of their draft coverage. Enjoyed watching you there and certainly enjoyed having a chance to talk with you long form here on the show. Thanks so much as always. Yeah, thanks for having me, Grant. It's always fun to talk baseball, man. I appreciate it. My thanks again to Carlos Colazzo. Make sure you're following his work on Twitter at Carlos A. Colazzo, and, of course, over at BaseballAmerica.com. The comprehensive draft coverage those guys have been putting together for quite some time. Certainly worth checking out and a subscription as well. So make sure you check out all the stuff available over at Baseball America, including the fine work of Mr. Carlos Colazzo. Well, that'll wrap us up for this episode of From the Diamond. As always, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Leave those ratings and reviews. They're always appreciated. On social media, you can find the show on Twitter at From the Diamond underscore 
I am at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. You can also find the show on Instagram at From the Diamond, and I am on Instagram at Grant McCauley as well. My thanks again to Eric Cole of Talking Chop and Carlos Colazzo of Baseball America for joining me on this show, and my thanks to you for making From the Diamond part of your weekly podcast routine. I am very much hoping that very, very soon we will have an update on what exactly the 2020 Major League Baseball season is going to look like and when we can expect it to get started. That does it for this episode of the show. We'll be back with more Braves and baseball discussion on the next episode of From the Diamond. Until then, I'm Grant McCauley. So long, everyone. 